0: Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter thirteen, verse eight to fourteen. This is the word of God. O no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed in this word: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, life is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and makes no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That says the Lord.
1: Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, your wisdom, Lord, is above anything that we can comprehend. Your thoughts are above our thoughts, your ways are above our ways. And Father, today as we come into a text that it gives us instructions that are hard for us, Lord, I pray that you soften our hearts, that we may hear your voice, that we may be moved, Lord, to obey you and to come into a deeper understanding of your purposes for us. Um, Be over your servant, Lord. May you lead him um, to serve faithfully and that it is not my words that will be preached, but it is your truth, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think I can make a pretty good case that the greatest African theologian of all time is this guy named Augustine of Hippo. In fact, I can make a pretty good case that he would be at least in the top three of the most influential theologians after the apostles themselves. And this giant of the Christian faith, a man who is venerated by our Catholic brothers and sisters as a saint, was not by any means pious from his youth. In fact, he struggled mightily with lust and became a slave to sex at age 16, to the point where he confessed in his confessions that his soul was so darkened that it could not distinguish the beauty of love from the muddy darkness of lust. And how this lustful, licentious sinner finally found the strength to overcome his sin and ultimately become the Saint Augustine, whose work has been a blessing to church for 1,700 years now, was through pretty randomly stumbling across the passage that we'll be thinking about today. And my prayer is that through our meditations of it, the Holy Spirit can use it to stir and transform us as well. So today we'll be continuing on our series in the book of Romans, and we'll be looking at the end of chapter 13. If you've been following along with us in our series, we are right in the middle of a section of the book, the last section of the book, where Paul is giving us some very practical instructions a series of imperatives that teaches us how those who believe should respond to the gospel truth that he just presented in chapters 1 through 11. In our text, we can see that Paul gives us, in a nutshell, the heart of his instructions that began in chapter 12, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul points out in our text at least three things about how we're supposed to do this. Our three points. The gospel calls Christians to one, love like Christ, two, because Christ is coming back, and three, so we got to put on Christ. Let me repeat that. The gospel calls Christians to, one, love like Christ, two, because Christ is coming back, and three, so we must put on Christ. Let's get into it, if you have your Bibles out, I encourage you to have keep it out and follow along with me as I'll be referring rather closely to the text. Point one, the gospel calls Christians to love like Christ. We can observe that at the end of Paul's instructions for all Christians to be exemplary citizens that we just read last, like we learned about last week, that it me- what it means to be followers of Christ as it relates to our civil duties is that we must pay to all whatever is owed to them, be it taxes, revenue, honor, respo- respect. The point being that we must never be put in a position whereby anyone can say that we, we have withheld anything that rightfully belongs to them. Then Paul here transitions smoothly in verse 8 to point out that even paying off, after paying off all that, There is still one duty, one obligation, one debt that can never be settled. The debt of love for your neighbor. Interesting here that Paul portrays our love towards one another, our obligation to love one another as a debt. Emphasizing the fact that it is not an optional instruction. We got to do it. And this debt is owed by all members of the church without qualification. The duty for Christians to love is not limited only to the holiest and most spiritual of us, but all. And those who are supposed to love is also without qualification. Our obligation to love is to all, because the word for neighbor here is actually more literally just a general term for other. So we owe love not just the people we get along with, not just people who are related to us, or close to us, either emotionally or geographically, and not even only to Christians, but all without qualification. And so, and just so we feel, right, like the weight of what Paul is asking us here, this debt is a permanent one. Unlike taxes whereby the government can say you've paid it off, or like honor or respect, wherein, the one to whom it's owed can say you have fulfilled your obligation, you must pay off the debt of love daily and yet always owe it. And why love is this permanent obligation is what Paul explains in verse 8b and 9, that loving one another is fulfilling the law. And Paul here quite clearly is referring to the moral law, the Ten Commandments. In fact, He lists four of the Ten Commandments here to make his point, alluding to the fact that just because we're saved by grace and our standing and our relationship with God has been secured for us through Christ, that doesn't mean that we are done with the law, that we don't need it anymore. We can just forget about it. On the contrary, the law still stands, and we are to obey it guided by this principle of love. You see, Paul here is just reiterating what Our Lord himself has taught us in Matthew 22, when this lawyer tried to test him by asking him, which is the greatest commandment? To which Jesus replied, to love your God with all your heart, all your mind, and your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments stands the law and the prophets. See, Jesus is saying that everything that's written in the Bible and everything that God commanded is meant to direct us to love God with all we got, And to love one another as ourselves. Everything else is supplementary. They are meant to help us do that. You see, love is a destination. The law or the direction. Love is the cake. And the law is the recipe. Law guides love. And love motivates the law. So there is no distinction in the Bible between love and law. Both go hand in hand. They are inseparable and to separate them causes us to fall into two equally unhelpful extremes. Because love that is divorced from the law will be relegated to some vague sentimentality, whereby we believe that loving someone is simply having these warm, fuzzy feelings about them. So our acts of love become simply being nice to someone or making them happy, but this can be misguided and we can be blatantly violating God's command while making someone we love happy. Furthermore, loving someone apart from God's commandment is a disrespect to God, because it's saying that we know better than God about what is actually good for them. Take for example, right, the socially acceptable idea of a white lie. While it might be genuinely motivated by our desire to protect the person's feelings or to spare them from distress, that we tell them the truth, it still violates God's law. Or for example, when someone who you love is caught up in a sinful lifestyle or relationship, and we think that the loving thing to do is not by calling them to repent and calling them on their sins, but seeking to affirm them in their choices or being silent in their sins. And it might be that genuinely you're motivated uh, by wanting to make them feel good, be happy, or suffer less, which is certainly what we should want for those who we love, but when we sin or validate sin in order to love, we are indirectly seeing that being comfortable in our sin is a legitimate way for us to flourish. All the while allowing ourselves and those we love to drift further away from God and coming into relationship with the one in whom our hearts can truly be at rest. When we try to do when we try to love apart from God's law, our good and loving affections can become confused and often speculative. See, how would they know what's good for them? And who are we to say what's good for the people we love? There's only one who knows. Meanwhile, prioritizing their comfort and opinion of us is therefore ultimately a failure to love God's wisdom. Who created our bodies and soul, and who actually knows what is good for us and what we're made for? On the other hand, love that divorced—I uh, mean, law that is divorced from love—is often legalistic and self-serving, whereby the motivation of our obedience not becomes to honor God and exercise trust in Him, but simply to modify our behavior and to feel that we've already done the right thing. And what we're in danger of doing is imposing these legalistic rules and expectations on people. Confusing love with making sure that people live and behave in what we think is the right way. Ultimately giving glory to ourselves for how righteous we have been and how successful and productive we are in trying to fix someone. While at the same time, potentially discouraging and even at times crushing the ones we are supposed to lead and teach. Sadly, much of Christianity has been infected with this loveless obedience to the law. Many have suffered emotional abuse by being forced into obedience through fear of hell and threat of public shame and isolation. See, this is the kind of love that the Pharisees showed, and we all know how Jesus felt about them. See, while loving definitely requires action, it can never be removed from affection. Because Paul further says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Imagine that. Giving everything to the poor, even your own life, ultimately is worthless if there is no love, if our hearts are not in it. Because the law without love ends up being selfish and can become suffocating. Our love becomes about us and not the other. And those we try to love will end up getting hurt. Therefore, it's not love at all because it fails to do what verse 10 says, or it fails to meet the qualification that love does no wrong. Because love is never meant to be self-serving or controlling. It's not meant to impose on someone expectations of what we need them to be or think they should be. But what love desires is the flourishing of the other, to be fully what they are created to be. And that's why it can never be apart from God's law because we flourish in fellowship with God, glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever. And we need the law to tell us how we can do that, be in this fellowship. See, brothers and sisters, paying off this debt of law of love is a lifelong commitment. It takes a lot of commitment to the person and a lot of reflection and study on God's command so that we would be wise on how we are to love fruitfully. And honoring this depth, friends, is even made weightier when we look at the Lord's teaching on love in John 13. When he says, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Lord himself says that how we love one another is what will validate to people our status as God's disciples. Our love will testify to the power of God that's working in our lives. It is what gives substance to the doctrine we believe in and the gospel that we preach. And to what extent are we supposed to love one another? Well, Jesus said it in John 13, again, in unmistakable terms, that, that, how, that just as... Jesus himself loved us. Love as I have loved you, our Lord said. And guess what? Jesus loved us by fulfilling the law. Our Lord obeyed the Father flawlessly and never sinned so that he can be worthy of being the perfect substitute who can take on the ultimate consequence of our failure to love God and to love one another. And our Lord showed his love by willingly giving up his life although he was under no obligation to. And he did that not because we can repay him back in any way, but so that we can live as we were meant to be in this restored, blessed relationship with our creator. So if we are to be like Christ and to love like Christ, our obedience can never be loveless and our love ought never be lawless. But also, friends, to be like Christ, our love must be limitless, radically showing self-sacrificial obedience even to the point of death, withholding nothing for the sake of love, and somehow being willing to consider others greater than ourselves to the point where our well-being, comfort, and image, and success is secondary to faithfully loving our brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but that Sounds very intimidating to me and unimaginably hard. And the only way we can even be willing to try to do this is if we have in mind the future that is to come, right? Point two, the gospel calls Christians to love like Christ because Christ is coming back. So notice here, verse 11, Paul transitions by saying besides this, but the ESV translation makes it look like he's changing the subject. But what he's really meant to communicate is the motivation for all the instruction that he's been giving is in chapter 12. It's summed up in what we just discussed, right? In loving like Christ. And he summarizes why we must get to loving like Christ by first saying that the hour has now come. See, what Paul wants to emphasize here is the urgency of this call to action, that we must not delay, we must get on this now. Right? These commandments are not simply good advice for the Christian life, but it is a wake-up call. And Paul said exactly this, right? It, now is not the time to sleep, but be awake. Now, clearly, this is not talking about literal sleep. It's a metaphor for the state of not really being aware of what's going on, like being mentally switched off, carried away in our thoughts and asleep in the cares of the world being spiritually numb to what is really going on. Practically, it looks like putting off our relationship with God, our spiritual health, our growth in Christ until later, because somehow we've become convinced that taking and securing our current life and working on on accomplishing our ambitions are more important than our sanctification. You see, Paul knows that one of the greatest hindrances to growing to be like Christ and being able to love like Him? is because love is costly. The more we try to love others necessarily means we have less time, less energy, less resources to spend on loving ourselves and doing what we want. And when we're spiritually asleep, we respond to this finite and limited nature of life by trying to maximize the pleasure we experience while we're able, or build some sort of legacy that will last through the ages. And friends, if we focus on that, it definitely means that we won't have the willingness and capacity to sacrificially love as Christ did. Because in the end, it's still gonna be about us. See, brothers and sisters, everybody knows life is short and we have a limited amount of time and resources here on earth. And the Bible does say that knowing our earthly lives won't last forever means that we should make the most of it. But making the most of it doesn't mean enjoying life all we can and leaving a lasting legacy. But it means preparing yourself as best as you can, as best as we can, for what's coming. And what is coming? Paul says it clearly, salvation. But maybe going, wait, didn't Paul tell us in the book of Romans that we're already saved Through Christ, by grace? Well, yes. But the Bible does talk about salvation as having a past, present, and future aspect. We have already been saved from the punishment of sin through the work of Christ on the cross. We are presently being saved from our practice of sin by the Spirit of Christ, and we will be saved from the presence of sin in the future when Christ returns in glory. So Paul here is clearly talking about this future aspect of salvation in mind where every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And we will be, we will enter into the very presence of God where he will wipe away every tear from our eye. And no one knows the day or the hour, but in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, and on that day, the faith shall be sight. Now, Jesus might not come back in our lifetime. While there might be signs that are there, he might not come back for another thousand years. But in any case, what Paul said is right, that today we are closer than ever to that day when Christ will return. So we gotta be mentally prepared for it to happen soon. At any time, in fact, because if Jesus doesn't come in our lifetime, he will certainly come for us individually in our death. This past year should have taught us that this can really come at any time and could really sneak up on us. And this is what Jesus, Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25, friends, when he taught the disciples about the coming of the Son of Man. That day will be a day of judgment when the king shall separate the sheep from the goats. And who are those who will be, uh, that on that blessed day will ultimately inherit the kingdom of God and receive eternal life, those who have ministered to the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the sick, and the imprisoned, and were doing so without an agenda. In other words, those who had been paying off the debt of love, Paul was talking about, because Jesus himself says that whoever ministers to the least of our brothers, we minister unto the Lord. Hence, every suffering we're in a position to ease, and every need we're capable of ministering to is an opportunity to pay off this permanent debt of love to one another. Because, brothers and sisters, our Lord is away right now, and He's entrusted us with what He has. Our task here is to take care of His world, to be His hand that eases the suffering of this hurting world that is so broken by sin. Loving it, seeking its peace, seeking its shalom, overcoming the evil of the present age by doing good. And as we love one another, we are really reciprocating to God the love that he's already shown to us, the abundant love that he's generously shown to us. And our Lord has given us gifts and talents the steward to be this blessing on his behalf. Some more than others, sure, but it's all from the Lord nonetheless. And we got to be back. We got to be ready for when our Lord comes back and takes into account what we have done. So let us not be like the worthless servant who buries his talent in the ground. Let us use what God has blessed us with to be a blessing. And when He returns, He may say to us, "Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Master." Friends. This dark and sinful world is passing away, and a new day is dawning. And while we are still in this world, the disciples of Christ is tasked with an honorable, but incredibly difficult task. There's so much suffering, so much need, so much brokenness, and we ourselves are limited, needy, and by no means perfect ourselves. So if you're sitting there feeling overwhelmed and thinking, how can I possibly do this? You're on the right track. Because sheer hard work and determination of the will will not be enough to do this. Thanks be to God. He has not left us alone. He has not left us on our own because there is a way to do this in our limited state. And the last verses of chapter 13 tells us how. Point three. The gospel calls Christians to love like Christ because Christ is coming back. So we must put on Christ. So we saw in verse 11, 12a, Paul gives us a wake up call, urging us to realize the urgency of the hour, that Christ could return before you know it. Then verse 12b to 14, he wants to enlighten us how to be prepared for when this does happen. And it all amounts to basically being done with our old selves, then taking up a new identity. In other words, now that we're awake, we've got to get dressed. And he gives us three parallel pairs of instructions to explain how to do this. First, he says, take off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul here is in one of his favorite metaphors to illustrate the Christian life the metaphor of war, right? What we're supposed to put on is this heavy, hard armor, not a dressed-in impress or some PJs we can relax in, but armor, because where we're going to is battle. And we need something that will help us make it through the war. Point here is that it's not, the Christian life is not gonna be comfortable and nice until Jesus comes back. You see, it's not going to be smooth sailing. It's not going to be this fairy tale, happily ever after, we're always comfortable and happy. The sinful world and our own sinful natures are going to be against us as we still live on earth. And all our life, we got to fight and make an intentional effort to fight against our sinful selves and walk in the light of God. But to put on this armor of light, we need to take off the works of darkness. Our self-indulgent sins. These were the clothes that we were wearing when we were asleep. right? Our comfortable, sinful pajamas. So we've got to take them off. They're not going to help us in the fight that's coming. And what Paul is telling us here is to renounce every sin that we have. Repent of them. Be ashamed of them. Be done with them. The book of Hebrews portrays sin as this weight that clings so closely onto us, preventing us to run the race that we're on. The armor is heavy enough as it is. We don't need any more weights, friends. The second pair of instructions further explains what Paul means here, that we are to walk properly as in the day and not in a list of six specific sins that Paul gives in verse 13. Let's notice them. It says, drunkenness, orgies, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. See, these six sins also come in three pairs of two, right? Drunkenness and orgies. Orgies here can be misleading in our context. These really refer to like some wild drinking parties talking about really more about the abuse of alcohol and substances in general. Then sexual immorality and sensuality referring to this unrestrained indulgence of our lust. And lastly, quarreling and jealousy, right? Having to do with our entitlement and inflated ego. See, and friends, aren't these particular sins the ones that are most normalized, tolerated, and even at times celebrated in our society? Substance abuse is seen as fun. Sexual indulgence is to be celebrated. And it's like we almost have the right to, to quarrel or be jealous for what we don't have. And what do all of these things have in common? It's the idolatry of the self, isn't it? All of these things stems from our own selfishness and ultimately seeking our own satisfaction. Never mind what happens to anyone else around us, the idolatry of the self is what creates desire and enjoyment for these works of darkness. So, to put it bluntly, right, getting over the sins starts with getting it through our heads that life is not all about us. Because walking in these sins will inevitably cause us to fail to love anyone other than ourselves. So we've got to take them off and walk properly as in the day. Now what is the day? Verse 12 has already told us that it is when Christ returns, when salvation finally comes. So what Paul is talking about here is that uh, we that we distance ourselves from the work of darkness and we ought to live like we're going to live when God's kingdom finally comes, free from the presence of sin and in a fellowship of love with one another, showing generosity, making peace, being an example to the world, friends, of what heaven is going to be like. And the third pair of sin instructions summarizes the only way we can possibly do this, that we must Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Did you notice, friends, that Paul didn't say that we should try harder to not sin. Paul didn't even say try harder to be like Christ. But Paul says, put him on, clothe yourself with him, believe in him, be united to him, and let him be your armor. Yes, we need to exercise efforts to obey his commands, but what this really involves is relying on the grace of God, actively loving and honoring him with all we can and trusting that the Holy Spirit is with us, working in us, shaping us, and perfecting us into the image of Christ, Really internalizing and living out the truth that I have died and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And to do this, we must, not, we must make no provision of, uh, for the flesh. We must not prepare for sin and indulge ourselves in our sinfulness. We must not make, it stro- make our sinfulness stronger or give our lusts and selfishness life. We must starve it, fight it, and try to kill it. Because the Bible says that the spirit and flesh are at war. The flesh desires that which is contrary to the spirit. And the Lord tells us that we cannot serve two masters. We will inevitably love one and hate the other. And we know, friends, what serving the flesh gets us, hey? Death. So, as John Owen famously says, kill sin, or sin will be killing you. This, friends, is the only way that we can love one another as Christ loves, is if we're done with ourselves and put Christ on. Focus our energy, resources, time, not on our ambition and happiness, but into knowing Christ and being like Christ, trusting his plans, knowing his heart, such that we internalize that because he has taken the punishment for our sins, Even when we fail to love, even when we receive the worldly consequences of our failure, and when things get harder for us, it's not God testing or punishing us, but they are God's loving acts of saving us. Because for God's children, every divine act is a saving act. Only when we realize this can we be relieved from the weight of our sins and see our hearts grow, to have the confidence. And desired to keep trying to obey in love, to keep going in this struggle, this war of Christian life. Trusting that God will finish the good work that he started in us. You know, Augustine, before he was really converted, he'd already heard the gospel. His mother, Monica, was a devout Christian. And he even sat under the preaching of Ambrose, one of the great Christian preachers of the time. And although he desperately wanted to, he still could not escape his sins. He was so weighed down by his guilt that he couldn't even bring himself to be baptized. But when he read verses 13 to 14, his heart flooded with faith and his anxiety melted away. Because although his flesh is weak and his will was resisting following the Lord, he was no longer intimidated and overwhelmed by the high demands of the Christian life. Because in that moment, Augustine realized that it is Christ who will complete the salvation that he couldn't see himself ever doing and that his efforts and obedience can be meaningful because Christ will perfect them. Only after that did Augustine learn to delight in praising God and his restless heart finally found rest in him. So will you put on Christ and rest in him? I, pray this is, I hope that this is so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a heavy and weighty task, Lord, that you have given to us limited, sinful creatures that are prone to wander. But Lord, in your mercy, knowing our frame, knowing that we are dust, you have sent your Son to complete what we could not. Let our hearts always be grateful for that. And may we continue to be stirred, Lord, that only praising you will bring us the light. Make the things of the earth strangely dim for us that we may put on Christ and live to see your glorious face when we finally return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.